If you have been under my teaching ministry for the many years that I have been here, uh, you know that one of my favorite chapters is Romans chapter 8. In fact, out of uh, 1,189 chapters in the Bible, if I could only have one, let's say I was going to go to prison or whatever, and I could only have one chapter, uh, I would choose Romans chapter 8. And no wonder. Here's how one theologian described Romans 8. He said, If Holy Scripture, all of the Bible, was a ring, and the epistle to the Romans its precious stone, chapter 8 would be the sparkling point of the jewel. Boy, I would say amen to that. As you may know, the chapter begins with no condemnation, and it ends with no separation. There's no condemnation whatsoever for those who are in Christ Jesus, and there will be no separation from God's love from those who are in Christ Jesus. When you study Paul's outline of Romans 6, 7, and 8, chapter 6 lays out God's principles for living a holy, a godly, a separated life. Chapter 7 describes the problem in trying to live such a life. And chapter 8 explains and sets forth the power for living this victorious Christian life. It presents and unfolds power beyond comprehension, so much so that Paul says in that chapter, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. That's amazing power. Why is this chapter so important to you and me? Well, let's face the facts. Uh, For so many Christians, they are resigned to living Christian lives that are anything but overcoming. Such admonitions from the Bible as, be holy as I am holy. Walk in newness of life. Rejoice always. And again, I say rejoice. Tend to have a hollow ring in them and seem to speak something that's kind of an ideal rather than a real experience of one's life. And to such, this eighth chapter of Romans is written and addressed. When I was in grade school, that goes way back, in Sweet Home, Oregon, uh, we had an evangelist come. He came from Grace Bible Institute in Omaha, and he represented the college, and he came there. His name was Vernon Dirksen. And Vernon Dirksen, uh, there was something about his life that just radiated uh, the, the love and the joy and the peace and the power of Christ. And uh, people would ask him, even us kids, uh, uh, Vernon Dirksen or Evangelist Dirksen, what is it? What do you have? And Vernon would say, it's spizzerinkdom. That's what it is. It's spizzerinkton. The truth was Vernon Dirksen was so filled with the Holy Spirit that he was living out moment by moment the power the Apostle Paul describes and explains here in Romans chapter 8. Now, Hans and I intend to take you on a journey through the book of Galatians, but I knew that we might be a shy a few people here because of of, uh, Labor Day weekend, and then next week, 30-some guys are going to be gone, so I thought, you know what, I'm going to look at Romans 8 this week, and Lord willing, next week, and uh, Hans said to me, Romans 8, you know what's in that book and how deep it is? I said, you're right, you're right. Uh, So we're only going to be able to touch the highlights of that, but my prayer is, for my own personal life, and I mean this with all my heart, my prayer for my own personal life and my journey on this trip to, to with the Lord until He calls me home, as well as for you, dear people, is that the Holy Spirit will just take this chapter and so wonderfully and so powerfully cause it to come alive in your life day in and day out. 
And people will see you and they say, you know, what is it about you? You seem to have the victory, the joy. And you'll say, you know what it is? It's spizzerinkdom. That's what it is, spizzerinkdom. So let's get started this morning. Your overcoming power. That's the title, isn't it? Your overcoming power. The indwelling Holy Spirit. First notice, He delivers you from the condemnation of your flesh. Verses 1 and 2. We even sang about that, that last chorus. He delivers you from the condemnation of your flesh. Verses 1 and 2. Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. Amazing words. How is so? How is this so? First, because you have been taken out of Adam and placed in Christ. That's what happened when you got saved. At that split second, he took you out of Adam and he placed you in Christ. That's the teaching, by the way, of Romans 5 and 6 that can be synthesized, really capsulized down with Galatians 2.20. And many of you know that verse. I have, I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Paul states, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You know, condemnation speaks of guilt. It speaks of judgment. And if you cannot and you will not live the victorious Christian life, uh, if you're continually being overpowered by guilt because of your sin and failure, be it in the past or even in the present. You'll never live a victorious life as long as you're overpowered by this guilt and a sense of coming judgment. In fact, if you're being overcome by the fear of judgment that is going to fall upon you, you'll never live in victory. What does verse 1 say again? Therefore, there is now no condemnation whatsoever. For those who are in Christ Jesus, when you get saved, you are taken out of Adam and you are immediately placed in Christ. And the indwelling Holy Spirit delivers you from the condemnation of your flesh, your old sin nature. But there's a second reason why you overcome. Uh, He delivers you from the condemnation of your flesh because Christ's merit and life have become yours. Again, that course we just sang spoke of that. Because Christ's merit and life have become yours. Here's God's verdict on every person who was born of Adam's offspring. And we all were. This is God. I wish people would get this down. What God, this is his verdict of every person who's born of Adam. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. Amazing. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. Oh, they are religious. They seek but not seek for God. All, literally everyone, has turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one God. That's God's verdict. Not even one. Add to that Romans 3.23, For all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But when God placed you in Christ Jesus, you received, you received His merit. You received His life. And God only, I love it, God only and always sees you only in His Son. You ought to have some amens to that. Did you ever get amens when you were preaching? I hope so. Especially when you cut it short 
Amen. <laughs> Therefore, all condemnation has been forever removed by God himself from your life, no matter what sins you have committed. And by the way, there's not a sin that's going to be brought up when you stand before the Lord. Now, it has an issue. It does with an issue with, with reward. But no sin. Boy, how I praise God. This is liberating stuff here in Romans chapter 8. But there's a third reason. Because of the law of the spirit of life, in verse 2. Because of the law of the spirit of life, verse 2 says, For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. We understand the law of sin and death. Jesus made it clear that everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. And such persons are dead spiritually, not having the life of God. And such persons will die physically. The wages of sin is death, it says in Romans 6.23. W.R. Newell says about Romans 8.2, The law of sin and of death, the latter part of chapter 7 made abundantly clear what that was. It's the power of sin working in our unredeemed bodies against which even man's renewed will was powerless. Add to that Griffith Thomas, he goes even further, he says, verse 2 really is the very theme of Romans 8. He goes on, he writes, the verse really indicates the theme of the chapter. The principle of the Holy Spirit of life in Christ Jesus delivers us from the principle of sin and death. He goes on, and this carries with it the guarantee of an immortal life hereafter. Sin and death refer to the source and the result of our condemnation. And from both of these, Christ by the Holy Spirit delivers us. That's incredible. That's glorious truth from God. In verse 2, God has declared to you His law. This is God's law. Must be important. Must be accurate. Must be true. The law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus. He calls the indwelling Holy Spirit the Spirit of life. He's the Spirit of life. And that life is where? In Christ Jesus who is in you. Down in verse 10, he explains it this way. You might look at verse 10. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit, and that's your spirit, not the Holy Spirit, your spirit is alive because of righteousness. And what does God declare to you? Because this law of sin, because the law of the Spirit of life dwells in you because you have been placed in Christ, you have been set free from the law of sin and of death. What a staggering truth. So what is your overcoming power? The indwelling Holy Spirit in Christ Jesus. That He delivers you from the condemnation of flesh. But dear ones, number two, He delivers you from the power of the flesh. He delivers you from the power of the flesh. Verses 3 through 8. It's absolutely wonderful that and glorious that I know that God has delivered me from the condemnation because of my past and present sinfulness and sinful flesh. And to know with absolute certainty that when I die or He comes back, I'm going to go to heaven and be with Him and enjoy Him throughout the eternal age of ages. But what about right now? <laughs> That's where it is. Isn't it? What about right now? while I'm still having to deal with this sinful flesh that still dwells in my body. Paul now addresses that very big problem in verses 3 through 8. Through Christ, through Christ, God condemned sin in the flesh. I know this is deep stuff, but how important is it? Through Christ, God condemned sin in the flesh. Let me read verses 3 and 4 to you. For what the law could not do... Weak as it was through the flesh. 
God did. Sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Through Christ, God condemns sin in the flesh. In verse 4, God's moral law required that of you and me absolute perfect righteousness. Again, I wish the world of unbelievers could get hold of that. It requires of you and me absolute perfect righteousness. But because of our being in Adam, possessing this fallen sinful flesh, we could not produce that perfect righteousness. In fact, in fact, we were born in sin, for David said, in sin did my mother conceive me. And Paul tells us in Romans 7, verses 10 and 11, and this commandment, that's that moral law of God, which was to result in life. It should have resulted in life. Proved to result in death for me. Why? For sin, taking an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. You see, God's commandment, His moral law, only excited and caused our flesh to rebel against this holy God. And that's what plays out in Romans verse 8, verses 5 through 8. James Stifler explains it this way. The law of sin in the members exists as long as they do. Do you get that? As long as you're around, that law of sin exists in you. But in Christ, how important? In Christ, it cannot operate. That's a profound thought. thought. It'll exist in you as long as your flesh or your body's here. But in Christ, it cannot operate. That's the principle, by the way, of Romans 6, verses 6 and 7. You might want to turn there. Romans 6, 6 and 7. That tells me you have your Bible or maybe your cell phone with the Bible on it. This is the principle he's talking about. Knowing this, verses 6 and 7 of Romans 6, knowing this, that our old self, that's your old man, was crucified with him, that's Lord Jesus Christ, in order that our body of sin might be done away with. Listen, that doesn't mean, it means, what it does, it means rendered inoperative, not destroyed or removed. It's still there, but it's rendered inoperative so that we would no longer be slaves to sin for he who has died is freed from sin. In other words, that's Galatians 2.20 again. But don't miss that important preposition back in verse 4. So go back there, Romans 8.4. You need to underline it. Don't miss it or circle it, whatever, Romans 8.4. So that the requirement, that's the perfection, the absolute perfect righteousness of the law might be fulfilled. What's the preposition there? In us, not by us. That's the life of Christ. That's Christ in you, that hope of glory. Therefore, verse 4 is the outworking of 7-6 in your outline. Verse 4 is the outworking of 7-6. Chapter 7, verse 6. But now we have been released from the law, having died to that which we were bound, so that we serve in newness of the Spirit and not in oldness of the letter. It's no longer you and me trying to live the Christian life, the victorious, godly life. Rather, it is the Holy Spirit and our yielding to Him. And we do it, we serve in newness of the Spirit, not in the oldness of the letter. Well, now we come to the clear contrast between the saved and unsaved person. That's important we see it. That's why Paul put it, the clear contrast between the saved and the unsaved person. Let me read verses 5 through 8 for you. Look at, Notice the clear contrast. For those who are according to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mindset on the flesh is death. 
But the mindset on the Spirit is life and peace. Because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. The clear contrast between the saved and the unsaved person, it kind of reminds me of Proverbs 23, 7, as a man thinks in his heart, what? So is he. How we think. What's going on with our minds. The saved person has been placed in Christ and has been given the mind of Christ. I hope you know that. If you're saved, you're in Christ. God the Holy Spirit dwells in you in Christ and you have been given the mind of Christ. The unsaved person's mind is controlled by his flesh, his fallen nature since he's in Adam. And as verses 6 to 8 state, notice this, that mindset on the flesh is death. Secondly, it's hostile toward God and absolutely cannot please Him. And yet you have a world of people seeking to be religious, whatever religion they may embrace, whatever church they might go to, whatever moral code they might have, trying to please God. And he says what? The person that's still in the flesh cannot please God. Amazing. The total depravity that's seen there. Notice the clear contrast. Verse 9, for example, declares... If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, what? What's it say? You can read it behind me, maybe. Maybe not. Okay, you got your Bible out? Verse 9, what's it say? If anyone doesn't have the Spirit of Christ, what? He doesn't belong to him. Wow. Well, as people ask, are they saved? You might ask, do they have the Spirit of Christ? You might ask what John stated in his epistle. He says there in 1 John uh, verse uh, chapter 5, verse 12, he said, he who has the Son has life. And he who does not have the Son of God does not have life. Obviously, that's eternal life. And Paul says of you and me who are in Christ in verse 9, you are not in the flesh, listen though, although the flesh is still in you. Did you get that? You need to think that one through. He says you're not in the flesh, but the flesh is still in you, in your unredeemed body, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. And in verse 6, we're told our mind is set on the Spirit of life and peace, And that's the very life of Christ himself, since we have been resurrected up with him according to Romans 6 and Galatians 2.20. And we're told in Romans 5.1 about that peace. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is incredible stuff to me, and I hope it is to you. I mean, to know that I have the life of Christ, to know that God, the Holy Spirit, dwells in me in Christ, to know that there's no more condemnation, and to also know that He has empowered me to deliver me from this indwelling flesh that's still in my unredeemed body. Amazing. To have that peace, that confidence. The saved person has both life and peace with God because he is indwelt with God, the Holy Spirit, having been placed in Christ. He has been delivered from absolutely all condemnation in his flesh, as well as delivered from the very power of that flesh that is still residing in his unredeemed body. But the unsaved person, though he be very moral, very religious, good, is completely under the domination of his flesh, his fallen sinful nature, and is dead in his trespasses and sins, separated from God and unable to please him in any way. That's staggering. That's what has to be dealt with before you come to saving faith, by the way. When we get to verses 12 and 13, I'll expand on how, the how of the Holy Spirit's delivering you from the power of your flesh. But he delivers you from the power of your flesh even now. But number three, he will deliver you or your body, 
from the power of death. He will deliver your body, this body, your body, from the power of death. Verses 10 and 11. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, that's an interesting statement. If Christ is in you, though your body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Isn't that staggering? Isn't that profound? Wow. He will deliver your body from the power of death. I want you to see your body, though dead, is exceedingly important to God. That's in your outline. Your body, though dead, is exceedingly important to God. Verse 10 says, if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit, that's your spirit, not the Holy Spirit, is alive because of righteousness. In 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, verses that many of you know, I'm sure, uh, he says, Paul says, do you not know that your body, this physical body, is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, who you have from God, and that you are not your own, for you've been bought with a price? Therefore glorify God in your body. And add to that 1 Thessalonians 5.23. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. What does that mean? And may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So your body, though dead, is extremely important to God. But secondly, the Holy Spirit will give life to your mortal body. He's going to give life to your physical mortal body body. Consider then the power of this Holy Spirit who dwells in you. Consider his power, his presence, his power. He raised Jesus up from the dead. I call that power. Verse 10 tells us our bodies presently are dead because of sin. Indeed, they're even now in the process of dying. And I hope you know that. Yeah. And as verse 23 states, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for the adoption of sons. And what's that? The redemption of our bodies. Notice Paul's well laid out outline here. Notice his outline. The Holy Spirit delivers you, delivers you in Christ from the condemnation of your flesh. Then the Holy Spirit delivers you as well from the power of your flesh. And he will ultimately deliver your body even from the power of death. That's a profound outline. Romans 8. No wonder Paul prayed to the, for the Ephesian believers in the Delhi, for these Roman believers as well, and therefore you and me. He said, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling and what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. And he's going to explain that in verses 16 through 17, so wait till we get there. And what is the surpassing power or greatness of the power toward us who believe? No wonder he prayed that. Oh, that God's people... And you and I today would get a hold of that and God would open our eyes and we would see that. What is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? To deliver me from all condemnation, to deliver me from the power of my flesh, and even to deliver my dead body, putting on immortality as he says. He will deliver your body from the power of death, for this perishable must put on imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. And how will that happen? How will he do that? Well, Philippians 3, 20 and 21 tell us, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior. Maybe it's just because I'm getting older. But I'm finding myself more and more eagerly waiting for the Savior. 
I mean, even when I'm driving around, like coming from Portland, having visit with Daniel, and driving, I see these clouds and say, Lord, there's a cloud, you could come. I'm in restaurants often, or, or a game or something, I'm thinking, boy, if you came right now, wow, that'd be great. I don't know about the rest of these people, but suddenly we're gone. They eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory. And how will He do that? By the exertion of the power that He has even to subject all things to Himself. That's God, the Holy Spirit, dwelling in you, dear ones. Just as He raised up Jesus Christ, He is going to raise up you who are redeemed as well. Now we come to the number four in your outline, the necessary response to the indwelling Holy Spirit. The necessary response to the indwelling Holy Spirit Verses 12 and 13. So then, brethren, we're under obligation. It's like a transition, isn't it? It's laid out all this power the Holy Spirit who dwells in you in Christ. We're under obligation, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you're living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Your necessary response to the indwelling Holy Spirit Acknowledge God has freed you to choose to live for Him. You know, some of us can't, we're stuck right there. Somehow we're thinking, no, I mean, that's not what He said. That's why we went through this first part. Acknowledge that God has freed you, your will, to choose to live for Him. That's what the unsaved person can never do. Acknowledge that He, God, has freed you to choose to live for Him. You have been introduced to the unlimited power of the Holy Spirit who dwells within you. That power will even raise your mortal body up from the dead and cause it to put on immortality. And Paul uses superlatives over in Ephesians when he says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we could ever ask or think according to the power that works within us. That's what you just saw in those verses in Romans 8. So acknowledge God has freed you to choose to live for Him, but also by the Spirit put to death the deeds of the body. By the Spirit. Verse 13, For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die, but if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. James Stifler again shares this helpful insight. Boy, I had to read this several times just to mull it over my heart. He writes, The flesh is one's constant I'm sorry, the flesh is one's constant and most intimate associate. I hate that, but boy, is that ever true. The flesh is one's constant and most intimate associate. The man in Christ is not in the flesh, but it is in him. Oh, amen. Amen. And the problem of salvation is not how to transmute the flesh into something good, but how to live with this devilish thing every day without being overcome by it. Amen. He goes on, the presence of the Spirit solves a problem. If by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live, and he adds this, live the life of sons, end quote. He further writes these words, if you by, not through, but by the Spirit put to death the deeds of the body, the emphatic words are by the Spirit, his presence is instant death to the evil deeds of the body. His presence. Is instant death to the evil deeds of the body. To subdue these by other means is deceptive asceticism. Get this, because we all try it. We work hard at it at times. To subdue these by other means is deceptive asceticism. By the force of will they may be chained, but 
as the section above shows, only God's Spirit can destroy them. Observe, he does not say destroy the flesh, nor destroy the body, but the deeds of the body. It's aspirations, impulses, desires, works. In other words, Galatians 5, 19-21, end of quote. Though you win the raging battle over your flesh by looking to the indwelling Holy Spirit, you will... In, I'm sorry... Let me start again. Though you win the raging battle over your flesh by looking to the indwelling Holy Spirit, your will is not passive in this warfare. That's why I mentioned above, acknowledge that God has freed you to choose to live for Him. Remember Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Work out, not for, but work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now that's your will that's being activated. Now here comes the power. For it is God causing you to will and work for His Good pleasure. See the two working together there. This is your will choosing to yield to the Holy Spirit's presence and to His power at work in your daily life, fulfilling the command of Romans six twelve through fourteen. Turn over there, Romans six twelve through fourteen. Hopefully, this will be, begin to come together for some of you as you see what the Holy Spirit has done, is doing, and will do for you there. Those first few verses of Romans eight. But Romans 6, 12-14, Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lust. See, that's the will. And the flesh is still in your body. Though you're not in the flesh, it's still in you. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God. Don't miss that. He said present yourself to a person, to God. Not just principles. Present yourself to God. The Holy Spirit, as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God, for sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. We saw that in those few verses of Romans chapter 8 there. Let me illustrate using the Old Testament, if I might. You remember those 12 spies. And they were sent into the land of Canaan to check out the people, the, the warriors, they're the people and their cities, and they come back and, you know, the tent said, they are giants. They are so well armed and they live in fortified cities. There's no way in the world that we could ever go up there and conquer them. Forget the fact that God had delivered them out of the most powerful nation in the world. And by the way, they did nothing to be delivered. Well, they had to apply the blood, but they did nothing. Forget the fact that they arrived at the Red Sea, and once again, they didn't have to turn around and fight the Egyptian army that was there. No, they did nothing. God opened it up, and they went through. Forget the fact that they're out there in the desert, the wilderness, with all that uh, fiery sun and so forth, and no water and so forth. And God, what, approximately maybe two million of them, plus all their livestock, and God provided every single day. Forget, Forget all of that. We cannot go up into Canaan, and take on these giants and these fortified cities because they are so many and they're so huge and they're so well armed and their cities are fortified. Now, when he brought them out of Egypt, you have a picture of Romans 8, 1 and 2. You did nothing to get saved. You did nothing to have all that condemnation and judgment and guilt removed. God did it all. But now you're 40 years later. And this new generation is going to go into the land. And how are they going to conquer? I'll tell you what. God is going before them. And God is going to fight for them in His power. But they're going to go up with weaponry. And they're going to fight too. See the difference? And that's what He's telling you now. That's, if you please, Romans 8, 
verses 12 and 13. By the Spirit, put to death the deeds of your body. Your will is not passive in this. It's very much active and involved in going forth and recognizing His presence and His power. But acknowledge God has freed you to choose to live for Him. And by that Spirit, put to death the deeds of your body. And by the way, even when Jesus was here being perfect God and perfect man, He never depended on His deity to live the victorious Christian life. He completely rested and trusted in the indwelling Holy Spirit, just exactly as God has designed for you and me to do as well. His life, His perfection, His righteousness, and His power by the Spirit in Christ Jesus. Number five, He leads you, confirming you are God's Son and Christ's joint heir. He leads you, confirming you are God's Son and Christ's joint heir. This leading is the outward sign of your inward change. Verses 14 and 15, For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you've not received a spirit of slavery, leading to fear again. That's what it would be like being unsaved under the moral law of God and the judgment, condemnation. But you've received a spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. This leading is the outward sign of your inward change. How does the Holy Spirit lead you? I'm sure under your ministry this summer, they've learned that, Hans. Because I listen to those messages. <laughs> okay. Well, let me show you three ways. There's more, but three ways. First, by the written word of God that he's authored, right? All scriptures inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training of righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. I mean, we could add scripture after scripture after scripture to show that God leads through his written word. So are you daily in the word? You want God, the Holy Spirit's power working in your life, and you want your will to yield to that? Are you daily in the Word? I mean, we are to be thinking the thoughts and having the mind of Christ. Second, though, the Holy Spirit works in your conscience. He works in your conscience. Paul testifies, saying in view of the resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked, he says, I also do my best to maintain always a blameless conscience. That's important, folks. I work at maintaining a blameless conscience both before God and before men. That's Acts 24, 15, and 16. And in 2 Corinthians 1, 12, he says, For our proud confidence is this, the testimony of our conscience. It tells us something here. That in holiness and godly sincerity, not in fleshly wisdom, but in the grace of God, we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially toward you. And add to that what Paul states in Romans 2. He says, One's conscience bears witness to God's moral law, and one's thoughts alternately accuse or defend them on the day when, according to the gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. That's Romans chapter 2. Your conscience is your God-given warning system. If you come to saving faith, he, he obviously has energized that conscience. And the more you know the mind of Christ in the scriptures, the more that conscience can work for you. So that's the second way. The third way is the Holy Spirit leads you is through your experiencing peace, the peace of God. Experiencing the peace of God. Colossians 3.15, let the peace of God rule. Referee, let it be a referee in your hearts. This leading of the Holy Spirit in your life is an outward sign of your inward change. It's what Paul describes when he writes these words to the Ephesians in reference to your former manner of life. You lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, 
which in the likeness of God has been created. You already have it there. It's been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. So this leading is the outward sign of an inward change. But secondly, the Spirit of God testifies. He testifies you are a child of God and a joint heir with Christ or of Christ. Let me read verses 14 through 17. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you have not received the spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may be also, also be glorified with him. The Spirit of God testifies you are a child of God and a joint heir of Christ. God just told you three most important or amazing truths about those who are being led by the Spirit of God there. First, you're no longer Satan's slave. By the way, let me add, you're no longer God's slave. Oh no, you are God's son, not a slave, his son. More about that in a moment. Secondly, the indwelling Holy Spirit and your quickened spirit testify to you that you are a child of God. One who's been born into God's family. Look at verse 16 again. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit. It's the Holy Spirit and your spirit that have been made alive that we are children of God. By the way, in Old Testament, Jew would never call God Father. <laughs> but you do. Isn't that great? I do. He's my daddy. He's my heavenly father. In fact, after he was raised from the dead, he met Mary Magdalene and said to her, Go to my brethren and say to them, I send to my father and your father and my God and your God. For the God of the universe to declare himself to be your father and you to be his son, his child, speaks of a whole new glorious relationship. But third, God did not just cause you to be born into his family, forgiving all your sin and making heaven your future home where you're going to enjoy bliss and eternal fellowship with him. Oh no, he went even further and pulled out all the stops and lavished his unfathomable grace upon you. He declares to you that you are not just his child by by spiritual birth into his family. He places you forward as his son. And that sonship focuses on his adopting you. Don't get messed up by that word adoption. Adopting you, which speaks of his making you his heir. Not just his heir, though, but he declares you to be a fellow heir, a joy heir with his beloved son. You don't just get into the kingdom, dear ones. You get to be there and reign with him. You talk about this power, this incredible privilege. That word adoption is used simply to focus on another aspect of your relationship with God. It focuses on your being God's son and therefore also his heir. It focuses on your God-given inheritance of which part uh, you already are enjoying. But there's more to come, much more to come. As the Apostle Paul tells you, you were sealed in him, Jesus Christ, with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our what? Our inheritance. Not just heaven, not just the kingdom, our inheritance. And then Paul prays for you and me. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? And what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? 
And what is the surpassing greatness of his power to you and me? What is it? It's your overcoming power. The indwelling Holy Spirit of God. And that power delivers you from the condemnation of your flesh. That power is delivering you right now from the power of your flesh that still resides in your body. That power will also raise up your dead body, making it a glorified body. And that power leads you moment by moment and confirms you are a child of God, even God's Son. And therefore, He has also made you a fellow heir with His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, His beloved Son. Dear ones, this is a profound chapter. I hope that somehow, as we've gone through this, and hopefully next week we'll go through it, that the Holy Spirit will just make Himself so relevant in your heart and mind and life. And things will begin happening in your life, in your prayer life, in your walk, in your battles and so forth, as you journey through life and in mind as well. And we would pray for one another that we would experience this, what we saw here in Romans 8. And people say, you know, there's something different about you. I don't know what it is, but you seem to have a joy. You seem to have a purpose. You seem to, to, to be on top of all. What is it? And you said, dear ones, it is spizzerinkum. Spizzerinkum. It is the Holy Spirit of God dwelling in me and my walking in victory, in Him, in Christ. Heavenly Father, we thank You for this incredible chapter. I know it's overwhelming. How I would pray that, O Holy Spirit, You're the author of this book. You're the author of this eighth chapter. You're also the author of our salvation. I mean, right now, You indwell my heart, my life, my body, as well as these dear folk as well. Father, I didn't bring it out, but there might be those who suddenly say, You know what? I don't think the Holy Spirit dwells in me. I don't think the Son of God dwells in me. I would pray that, oh, Holy Spirit, may you speak to their heart. There's nothing they can do, nothing at all, that can gain any kind of merit with you. You said there's none righteous, no, not one. There's none that good, none none who understands. I would pray that instead they would turn to you and say, it's not me. It's not me. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. It's His righteousness, His atoning work, His life. And they would open their heart and say, save me. And welcome you to come into their life. And God, you, the Holy Spirit, in Christ Jesus, will do just that. Filling them with joy. Taking all the condemnation of their past life and sin, and even future sins, away forevermore. And then, Lord, for the rest of us who are redeemed, we would pray that we will experience this overcoming power as this flesh still resides in us. Even as we partake of these communion elements, oh, Father, help us because of this message, because of the words on the scripture here, help us to want to walk and to choose to will to yield ourselves to the indwelling Holy Spirit. By the Spirit, by the Spirit, by the Spirit, we overcome. And we're even more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.